Welcome to episode 157, Listening for Shame in Psychotherapy, featuring Cynthia Mulder, licensed clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am really delighted and interested today to be joined by Cynthia Mulder. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and her specialization is in shame and understanding how shame shows up for us as human beings, understanding how it shows up in therapy. And goodness knows all of us have probably our own very unique um, and perhaps painful relationship with this topic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cynthia. I'm delighted to be here. So why don't you take a moment and tell our listeners about yourself and then how you came to zoom in on a particular topic of shame? Sure. So um, as you said, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I have spent over 20 years working in various settings, initially with victims of trauma, and then as a family therapist for individuals with severe and persistent depression and personality disorders. And then the last 11 years of my career, I was director of education and training at the Menninger Clinic, a private psychiatric hospital in Houston. And when I came to Menninger, I was introduced to Brene Brown's work. And on the at the clinic, there, were, there was a group on the professionals unit that was called Shame Resilience. And so I was invited to join this group and it was really transformational for me professionally, but also personally. And I had spent a little time thinking about shame back in the 80s when John Bradshaw's book came out, Healing the Shame That Binds You. That was something that I was intrigued by. And then uh, I got some training in DBT. And so the idea of shame and guilt being joined together to use opposite action or recognizing when you're in shame or guilt. But then when I got to Menninger, there was this real delineation between, there's a difference between shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. And so sitting in these group sessions with professionals, and I should say I'm a cis white woman, and many of the people that I was taking care of were also predominantly white. And yet the concepts that we were exploring and talking about, I think are very relatable. And I had the opportunity to actually join Brene and be part of her, at the time, senior faculty to think about how do we bring this conversation about shame into clinical practice and into other settings. I did some of the work in the military with priests, but really thinking about the role of shame in our lives and how often it is not discussed. And so over the course of time, I really just, I initially was working in a group setting and then in my individual sessions, listening for shame and how hidden it is, even when somebody is sitting talking to you they may not be aware that they're talking about shame. So this emotion that is so related to psychological distress, 
the opportunity to help people realize that the, this was linked to shame and help them have a conversation about shame, the majority of the patients were also transformed saying things like, I never knew that this was about shame. I've spent my whole life feeling less than inadequate, but I didn't know the word shame. I just thought I was depressed. And so over time in working with individuals and families, you know, I would do a little bit of education in the, in our family education day that says, Oftentimes there is shame linked to psychological distress and families may have shame about having a loved one who is struggling. It, it's this universal emotion that nobody wants to talk about. And the less we talk about it, the worse it is. And so here I am, you know, many years later, and so much of my time is spent listening to when shame shows up in the therapy hour. And it shows up in the first phone call when somebody is calling to ask for help. They are both being courageous, vulnerable, and at risk for feeling shame at the same time, which is why so many people don't call for help, don't make that phone call until they're in a crisis. Already, as you're just introducing these concepts, my brain is creating all of these questions. You know, even just the idea you've been talking specifically about the way that shame shows up in therapy, but then I'm sure for you, as someone that specialized in it, the shame showing up everywhere, all around you in all different ways at the grocery store and at the gas station and all of these other things because you've you've become so um, trained to hone in on it. Um, I want to go back to one of the concepts you introduced and let's start there kind of as our uh, point number one, the difference between shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. Why don't we start just by having you um, define those terms and explain the nuances? Because I think if we look in a thesaurus to many of us, those mean the same thing. So let's start by kind of breaking down what is specifically shame and how is it different from these other concepts? Sure. So how I think about it is if we start at the sort of lowest emotion, and these are these are all emotions of self-conscious affect. So there's a way that we become extremely self-conscious when we experience these emotions. And they all have different frequency intensity and duration. And the, the sort of one that causes the least amount of um, destruction is embarrassment. And what it, it, embarrassment is the thought that I've, I've done something, but I can imagine somebody else in the world has made a similar mistake. So we've all had food stuck in our teeth. We've all mispronounced somebody's name. We all might have uh, walked out of the bathroom with toilet paper stuck on our shoe. There are these events that happen where we are filled with feeling, but we can imagine somebody else in the world has felt this. And because we can join and connect with others, it does not feel as painful. And it doesn't, we don't tend to remember all of the embarrassing moments. 
if we're going up in sort of intensity, frequency, and duration, the other thing about embarrassment is we can eventually laugh about it. We can find it funny and we'll oftentimes talk to people about it. Then we have guilt and humiliation. And humiliation is painful, but we can oftentimes feel that it is not deserved. And therefore we get angry and we talk about it. It's still very painful to be humiliated, but if it's not deserved, it's much easier to say, you're not gonna believe what that person just said or what that person just did because I didn't deserve it. With guilt, the focus is on the behavior. So I made a mistake. And with if we focus on the behavior, we can make amends and apologize for the behavior that we did. If I was dishonest, I might feel guilty about being dishonest. And therefore I might go back and say, I'm sorry that I was dishonest. With shame, the focus is on the self. It is an attack on the self that doesn't is not funny, is deeply painful, and we typically don't ever find anything funny about it. And it is incredibly isolating because we feel that we are the only person who has ever made um, this mistake, this error. The difference, really clear way to say that is guilt is I made a mistake and shame is I am a mistake. You know, one of the things that I talk about when I'm talking with patients or I'm talking with clinicians is actually knowing the difference between those four emotions is a win. If a patient can leave treatment and know the difference between shame, guilt, embarrassment, and humiliation for themselves, that's a huge way towards developing resilience to the emotion. So often the word when you ask people, you know, what word would you use to describe shame? The number one word is embarrassment. But embarrassment and shame have different physiological reactions. And so beginning to help people tease that out. And what for one person might be embarrassing could be another person activate shame because it's based on how we live and experience the world. So if I am at a presentation and I have food stuck to my teeth, I might not find that funny. I might that find that to be so mortifying that I can't, it's very hard for me to recover. And so my self-talk would probably be something like, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I didn't check. It might be very hard for me to have forgiveness and compassion toward myself. I might not be able to think, I'm sure somebody else in the world has had that experience. But if I can, the other thing about shame is we typically don't talk about it. So we stay silent, it stays secret, and then we are ruthless judges on ourselves for what we've done. So when looking at this hierarchy, if you will, of embarrassment, humiliation, guilt, and shame, it sounds like then it's almost an interpersonal 
an intrapersonal process of what takes something from embarrassment, humiliation, or guilt and kicks it into the category of shame? Yes, I would say it is, it is relational. And you could start off feeling embarrassment and then it could dip into shame or feel guilt and then dip into shame. I call it the shame guilt superhighway. You know, that it may be hard to keep something focused on your behavior and not dip into what's wrong with me. Why did, why did I do that? Which is again, turning something more toward shame. And so shame starts off as a two person experience. We don't come into the world feeling shame. We learn about shame in the presence of another person. And then we have the capacity to shame ourselves with nobody else there. So it's an inherently relational construct. And people will have said, my, you should be ashamed of yourself or give a look that tells you you haven't met the standards of another person. And, you know, I recently heard um, Peter Shabbat, a psychoanalyst out of Chicago, he referred to shame as a reflexive response to a rupture of expectant hope. So if I come to you with an expectant hope and it doesn't happen, then what I am left with is this reflexive response to shame, this reflexive shame, where I will believe it's my fault, that that rupture of, of having my hope met in that sort of rejection or disillusionment, I will then take it upon myself and say, what's wrong with me? It's my fault. I don't, I don't go back and say, I think my mom was having a bad day when she didn't respond to me or didn't look excited to see my little picture I drew. So those early childhood experiences where that, where you're not met with a mirroring other is an activator of shame. I see all human emotion as having some kind of evolutionary advantage, if you will. You know, our, our habit of dissociation, so often we demonize that habit when actually it can be incredibly adaptive if our brains are like, nope, can't do anymore. I'm just going to shut that off right now. <laughs> what is the adaptiveness associated with shame? Is it to bring us back into our communal roots to motivate connection and, and relational stability? I think so. And, you know, Brene once told a story about we needed shame early on in civilization because uh, we needed to keep each other safe. And if somebody did something that left the community unsafe, shame was an emotion that, that told us that something was happening, that we needed to shame the person so they understood, we hoped they felt shame so they could understand the gravity of what had gone on. You know, I think the research shows though that shame is highly correlated with many psychiatric illnesses. So depression, anxiety, eating disorders, addiction, trauma, 
suicide, bullying, violence. There are many links between uh, correlations between shame and those psychiatric illnesses or psychological despair and distress. So today, you know, if the focus can be more on behavior, we can change behavior. But if you're getting a message that is an attack on the self, we're going to end up with disconnection from the self. Mm. And therefore disconnection from others, I'm guessing. Right. And shame is the fear of disconnection because we're wired for connection. Whew. So shame in low to moderate amounts <laughs> could be motivating and self-correcting and help us go back into the fold with the herd, so to speak. And in excess, it becomes unmanageable. It starts to interfere in our functioning. Yeah, what I would say, and I know there's new research on this um, about shame and guilt. And one of the big researchers is June Tagney, in addition to Brene Brown. But June Tagney does a lot of research on the difference between shame and guilt. And she was one of the first, she, she was somebody who took the work of Helen Block Lewis. So Helen Block Lewis first wrote about the difference between shame and guilt in the 1970s. And then others have picked up the difference between these emotions. And June Tagney recently has been doing more research on how is shame, what is the benefit to shame? I think how I think about it is that, you know, we, we want to live by certain moral principles that were supporting how we live and, and support each other in the world. And there are, there can be maladaptive guilt. So, you know, if I've made a mistake and I've, I have the opportunity to apologize, then hopefully after that, I can let it go. But if I'm constantly apologizing and over apologizing and, and continually apologizing, then I think we're more in the lexicon of shame because it's if we're apologizing for our existence. And so that, that feels different than something that's focused on my behavior that I can make, I can say I'm sorry and move on from. If I asked you to think about something shaming in your life, which I'm not gonna do right now, <laughs> <laughs> but if I did, you would have a physiological response because shame hits us in the limbic system, fight, flight, freeze. So this idea of a reflexive response is right on. When we're in shame, our ability to think straight has been hijacked. And so much of the work is trying to get regulated so you can think again. So oftentimes, and this is something Brene said, is like, don't say, text, call anybody when you're in shame. Pause slow down, try to, you know, reach out and talk to somebody who you can trust, who can remind you that you are more than what you're ashamed of, so that you can then try to engage with your thinking brain. I think it's easier to think and problem solve when we're in guilt, because it allows us to say, yeah, that wasn't one of my finer moments. 
I'm sorry. What do you need from me? Is there something I can do to help us move through this? But if if it's activated in me that I'm a terrible person and I've dropped into my shame, I'm going to have an internal shame storm that, and I may respond in kind of patterned ways. So the patterned ways are, I might get really angry, lash out. I might avoid, isolate, ignore, disappear, or I might become people pleasing. And I might start saying, sure, I'll do that. Sure, I'll do that. I'm so sorry, what else can I do? But none of them, but they're all motivated from a place of shame. And over many years, if you keep saying yes to something when you really wanna say no, resentment will grow. And it, as I like to say, it'll blow out sideways, right? That we have our own capacities. And so, so much of the work is helping people recognize what are their shame triggers, what happens in their body that they could begin to think about, oh, I wonder if I'm in some shame and to slow everything down, to pause, and then to try to speak about it and reach out to somebody who you trust and can hear you and not try to talk you out of your shame. There's nothing worse than being tried to be talked out of your shame. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. You need to have empathy in order Empathy and self-compassion are going to be the things that help sort of get your body down-regulated. It sounds a bit jargony, but that's the goal is to get down-regulated because if you act out of shame, it will only evoke more shame. I can also see how one's experience of shame is contextual in like their experience of the world at that moment, you know, thinking for myself when I'm particularly vulnerable because of whatever, much more likely to experience shame, much more likely to want to act out. And I'm sure that we as clinicians have observed the same in our clients, that it's, you know, as you said, getting angry, it's one of the ways we try to protect ourselves. Um, Or to people, please, how do I get myself back into a position of um, goodness with somebody else? I can see, again, kind of this almost evolutionary origin to these corrective behaviors. But if it goes haywire, if the shame becomes too big, it becomes unmanageable enough that it bleeds over into other aspects of our lives and becomes, quote unquote, pathological, which is a whole separate conversation of what is pathology. But this idea of like, if, if I'm using that term to describe something that now is really having significant impact across multiple domains of functioning, if we're looking at, like you said, in the context of mental health conditions or addictive disorders or um, eating behaviors, for example, that then it crosses over into this different category. Um, r- right when we started, you mentioned yourself saying, I am a, a white cisgender woman. Tell me about the um, sociocultural, ethnic, identity-based concepts associated with shame. You know, I, I remember way back in the day reading one of Dr. Brene Brown's books where she had a man walk up to her and say, well, I can tell you a thing or two about shame, you know, in this white knight phenomenon, quote unquote. And she reflects in the book about how 
she never really thought <laughs> about a man's experience of shame because she as a woman was accustomed to this shame. And, and you even bring up this idea of this is who I am relative to the shame around me. How do you see shame in relation to different intersectionality and identities? Or is it that nobody has cornered the market? We just have different brands of shame, if you will. Yeah, I would say that shame is ubiquitous. We all have it. And it we and how we experience it may will be different based on our unique lens of the world and our identity. So if we think about the multiple identities that individuals have, uh, the affiliations that people have. So if we think about race, class, gender, you know, ability, sure I'm missing a couple, but those, the ability to look through the world and to feel less than, to feel like there's something um, unwanted, unworthy about who you are. Stereotypes, labels will all be elicitors of shame where you are told you are you do not belong. And so when that exists, those those that will be uh, elicitors of shame. And you know, we live in a world where we are constantly being told like who to be, how to be, what to be. And so if you don't feel like you measure up, you know, I think about if you're African American, if you're um uh, indigenous, if you're, uh, this is pride month, right? If you're LGBTQI, there's some kind of othering that happens. And when that othering happens, that can be the elicitor of shame. And so it's ubiquitous and people can deny it. I mean, I sat with somebody for five weeks saying, I don't have shame. I don't have shame. I don't have shame. And eventually we found an opening to think about how they experienced themselves in the world, where they felt small, where they felt belittled, where they felt demeaned, dismissed. And suddenly they were able to say, oh, I didn't know that's what you were talking about. I felt like I didn't belong. There was something wrong with me. Then you're beginning to have the conversation. I hope that sort of helps think about that. It's a wonderful, wonderful question. It does. And and I also can hear the duality. So you're saying, yes, shame is ubiquitous. It's something that everybody experiences. And also, let's look at what shame is as a phenomenon when it is that deep sense of not belonging, deep sense of otherness and that that goes hand in hand with any marginalized community. So the potential for that to just build upon itself with membership in these particular groups. And and I would also imagine um, when there's a lack of membership within a particular group. So if we have the protection of our direct community around us, you know, if we're part of the queer community and then something happens, we could experience it as embarrassment. But if we're ourselves in the queer community and something happens in the context of the non-queer community, for example, then does it trigger shame in a way that wouldn't have happened because we don't have the in-group phenomenon protecting us? 
Um, I would imagine there's a lot there. And out of curiosity, has research been done on that? Or is it being done on this idea that basically the more marginalized identity cards you hold, the more likely you are to have experienced otherness and therefore may have a really intimate, deep relationship with with your own brand of shame? You know, I'm not as aware. I, I know that there's a lot of research happening. I don't know currently what is at play. So that's something I can sort of do a little bit of research and get back to you on. What it sparks in me is that being able to listen to another's experience and try to hear how shame is showing up. Because even if you are in a community or an affiliation that you say, um, you know, I can, uh, I'll use myself, there are times that um, issues of class can come up. But that's also my unique world. It, it could be a, there could be a situation and it could show up for sh- as shame for me. Somebody else might experience guilt. Somebody else might experience embarrassment. And somebody else, it might not even be on their radar. So that the, the uniqueness as to what this emotion creates in us. So when somebody says, well, why are you ashamed about that? Right? Misses the mark of, tell me what's your experience. Because even if you've had the same experience, you don't know how another person feels. And if somebody says, oh, I know exactly how you feel, that usually does not go over very well (laughs) because we all have our own unique experience. And so there is one of the things that maybe what you're getting at is when we can talk to others and be met with empathy, it's much harder for shame to exist. Having being in an environment where there's a shared experience, there's a way that that there can be much more empathy as to how to interface in the world and how to be in the world. And that develops resilience, right? So that you develop some resilience and you have the ability to say this, this thing just happened. I was so ashamed of it. I felt so awful. My whole body was on fire in this moment. Um, Every time I think about it, it comes back up. I can, I can start to feel my whole body begin to churn about it. And that's the visceral response to it. So if you are marginalized, then you're all then, and this is hard because I'm not a marginalized individual. So I have a tremendous amount of privilege, but that doesn't mean that I don't feel shame. And I can feel shame at my own inadequacies. And as a marginalized, to be in a marginalized group, the role of shame as part of that is also important to be able to externalize and talk about. As you're talking about it, it's reminding me of a conversation that I had with Dr. Sonia Sutherland and the concept of social determinants of health. And so if we're looking at, as you said, you know, if shame is causing this limbic system activation, what's the price for a person, for an affiliation, a community? 
to have chronic activation and then what happens in our bodies in response to that in terms of our HPA axis and um, our cortisol and our blood sugar and all these other things that are social determinants of health. But so I'm, I'm glad that we're having kind of this layer of the conversation. And for our listeners, I encourage you to listen to our other episodes with Dr. Sonia Sutherland, because she talks about some of this too, where it's kind of this inherent part of being part of a marginalized identity group. And also then the other layer I'm hearing as we're talking about it is the capacity for shame in the context of therapy and how dangerous that is for us as clinicians. When someone says something and we being the imperfect humans that we are, in addition to being clinicians, maybe have some of our own stuff come up, our own reaction, but then it just feeds this shame spiral for the client because whatever the disclosure was, was not meant with empathy and the, um, the very careful position that we are in and need to be mindful of. Absolutely. I think both things that you're saying are, are right on. And so what is the, what are the consequences? What is that experience? And as clinicians, are we also really holding that in mind? I mean, to reach out and ask for help is vulnerable. And so if we don't recognize that that person reaching out for help is vulnerable the minute they pick up the phone call, how long it's probably taken them to pick up the phone and make a phone call, to come in and talk about what is deeply painful with somebody you don't know, right? It goes back, It also a comp component of this is trust. Who do I trust? And we need, in order to be, to share our vulnerabilities, we hopefully are doing that in the presence of people who are trusting and have demonstrated trustworthiness. So if somebody comes in and says, I trust you, um, you know, I completely trust you, I will say, well, tell me how that is because you're just getting to know me. And I think we need, I need to demonstrate to you that I'm trustworthy. And in the ruptures of trust, that can also be, or betrayals of trust where we can have trauma we also have shame. And so in that limbic system, fight, flight, freeze, that's also where trauma is processed. That's where shame is also processed, emotions. And so when somebody is coming in, it's really important to hear what they're talking about through that lens of how vulnerable they feel. You know, high levels of anxiety may be defending against the, the inner terror, right? We might be more attuned to anxiety. We may be more attuned to anger. But if we can really begin to think, is there some shame underneath? And can we create an environment that's, that is empathic and supportive and validating the courage that it takes to show up and the courage it takes to come back. I mean, sometimes the most important thing we can do is be talking about the relationship between myself and the, and the client. And if I've upset them, if they have the courage to let me know and to trust that I will listen with empathy, that I won't defend myself, I won't dismiss it, I won't say that, you know, that's not what I intended right? But I can say, wow, I, I hear that I really hurt you. Let's talk about that. 
Is empathy the antidote to shame? Yes. We have to be in the presence of a trusting other who can be with us in that shame, not judge it. Somebody who can take our perspective, connect to the emotions, not to the story, but connect to the emotions and, you know, be open to listen in a non-judgmental way, not tell us what to do, not tell us what we should have done. And oftentimes there's very little to be said. There's much more about holding space, being present, reflecting that we are working to understand how painful it is. And if we don't understand, we need to say, we don't, we don't fully understand. Please help me understand. And self-compassion. We also need to have a much uh, higher level of self-compassion. People with high levels of shame tend to have very low levels of self-compassion. And so one of the things that's important is to begin to try to change that self-talk. Like I said earlier, we learn about shame in relation to other people. We internalize that experience as if, as if we can hear that voice of the person who shamed us. And then we make it our own. And then we use it ruthlessly and relentlessly on our own. And it's a way that we would never talk to somebody else. The way that I talk to myself is not how I would ever talk to another human being. But somehow I've allowed myself to do this and think that there are no consequences. But there are tremendous consequences for shaming myself. And so in the work, that ability to see and what I like to do is map out how thoughts and feelings kind of bring us into a core issue of shame and then the ways that we try to get away from it. I'm trying to visualize shame <laughs> um, as you're speaking about it. And what I'm picturing is a really tough piece of clay and kind of the time and attention and energy that it takes to gently knead it and start shaping it into something else. If high levels of shame are correlated with mental health conditions, and I, I would assume also with the lack of quality of life, um, is one of our primary goals in therapy then to reduce shame? I would say it's to help people be resilient to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I don't think we can, I don't think we can get rid of it. I think we have to recognize when we're in it, know what triggered it and try to move through it constructively. And that what I'm speaking right now is really from Brene Brown's work and the, the curriculum she created that is really outlined in the book, Daring Greatly. Um, but really to develop resilience to shame is you've got to know when you're in it, what triggered it, um, who you can talk to about it and make some link to and connect to others that you're not the only person that fill in the blank. So if I know I'm going to do something uh, 
where I'm susceptible or vulnerable to shame, then it would be much better for me to go in with some strategies rather than to go in and think I'm not going to experience it. So if you know what triggers your shame, then you can be more constructive about, okay, how am I going to manage this? So, you know, because we can't, we can't prevent it, right? Now, if somebody is directly shaming us, then we can make a choice that we don't want to have a relationship with that person. Can you speak more on that? Because from a linguistic standpoint, this is where um, the narrative can get kind of complicated because someone could be attempting to shame without the other person experiencing shame. Someone could be trying not to shame somebody else while the other person is still experiencing shame. So for you, I I would imagine if someone is shaming you, then it is basically with the direct goal of othering you. Yes. Diminishing me, making me small or, you know, devaluing, putting me down, dismissing. To go back to what you said about the self-awareness of recognizing oneself going into a circumstance that we'll say is a hotbed (laughs) of shame. What does prevention and early intervention look like in that context? Like, what is that? I mean, is that texting like your friend that, that you trust saying, Hey, this thing is, this thing could happen. And here's the potential fallout. Like tell, tell me how we basically inoculate ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is knowing, uh, knowing the signs in my own body that tell me I'm getting activated. So as you were describing the clay, you know, I, for myself, I can have the experience. um, I get a very upset stomach. Time starts to slow down. People start talking like the Charlie Brown person for me, like want, want, want. It's harder for me to connect to the words that they're saying. I can feel very hot. I know that my face gets flushed which also is hard because then it tells somebody they can see in me that something's happening. A lot of those other physiological responses you can't see. So I can be in my shame and you will have no idea that I'm in my shame. But for me, because I know that I blush and flush, that is enough. So then I can have shame that I flush and I blush. So you know, and I'm going to take us on a side jaunt here. So one of the things is that shame can be an instigator or a response. So in that example I just gave, right, I may be in shame and then my, I have a response, which is my face flushes. And then I feel shame about my face flushing. So if we think about, I, somebody has um, shame about body image they develop an eating disorder, and then they have shame about their eating disorder. So if we think about it as an instigator or a response, it's coming at us from both sides. So if I'm going to into something where I know I may be vulnerable, you know, it could be a family gathering, you know, and, and part of it is thinking about where are the um, areas in your life that you are vulnerable to shame. And so let's say that there's, Uh, you know, one of the things that I did when I first started doing, um, 
presentations is I would have this moment of like, okay, are people engaged? Are they looking like they're liking what I'm saying? And so in that moment, if I, if I clued in to somebody who might look bored, then I might start to get anxious and I might start to think, oh, I really stink at this. I really am no good. Now I'm into some shame. So in the future, I was like, okay, I'm going to pick out the person who looks like they're having a good time and I'm only going to look at them. I'm not going to look at everybody else or I'm going to look in the back of the room. I'm not going to look at anybody's faces. I'm going to text a friend ahead of time and say, I'm going to do this talk. I'm really anxious about it. And, and I'm going to text you when it's done so that I have that person who can say, you know, who can say you're going to be great, but in a way that I have a hard time hearing that, but then they, I have somebody who is in my support system that knows I'm going to do something courageous, right? If I'm going and I'm going to do something courageous for me, I'm going to be susceptible to shame because I'm in that space of vulnerability. So shame, vulnerability, courage, throw in some perfectionism there. It's sort of a hotbed of where it can elicit it. So if I know that and I have some strategies, then that may help me because on the far side, I know that I'm going to have some empathy with somebody who's who I can trust, who can hear how bad it's been, who won't say, give platitudes that I'm not going to be able to hear, but is bearing witness to some courage that I've, the courage I've tried to engage. So in, a, in another way, let's say it's uh, somebody who is in early sobriety and they're terrified to go into a meeting and ask somebody to be their sponsor because they're worried nobody will, they'll be rejected. They're worried that um, they might say the wrong thing. They're just feeling very, that's a very vulnerable moment to go into a meeting to see, you know, when, when they ask the question, is anybody available to sponsor, to then go up to that person and say, will you work with me? So developing resilience can be, okay, what are the symptoms in your body? Let's pay attention to those. Let's remind yourself that this is an important, courageous step in your recovery, that you've let people know that you're going to go do this and that you're going to let them know how it went afterwards and that they will meet you with empathy and you also be kind to yourself as you're, you're trying to remind yourself, this is a big step. I'm doing something courageous. It, it, what is courageous for me may look very different in terms of what is courageous for another person. You know, I had somebody say uh, who struggled with eating disorders, going to the grocery store was just horrendous. Um, you know, the, the stress, the anxiety, the upset at to how their mind worked about their relationship to food and how they ended up in a sort of a shame storm each time they were making a choice. And for lots of other people going to the grocery store may not be any big deal. And so that moment of saying, that sounds like that was really difficult. And wow, that was really courageous. Like our clients need to hear that. They need to hear that we recognize 
when they've done something courageous. And even if it doesn't go well, right? If it was a disaster, okay, let's keep talking about it. Let's not avoid it. Let's not pretend. So, you know, knowing what it feels like. And then if you suddenly find yourself in shame, then you have a strategy that says, okay, how am I going to, how do I exit from the conversation? How do I um, pause and have a way of saying something that says, um, you know, I've got to take a break. I've got to get some space because once you're in shame, then you're in survival mode. And we can't, we really, I think this goes back to something you said, we can't live in a survival mode state 24 seven. And for some individuals, that is what's happening. And that is not okay. You talked not only about the way that somebody in shame is received by community, by relationship, but also the way that they're talking to themselves. How do we as clinicians work within that arena? Mm -hmm. I think, first of all, if clinicians know the difference between shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment, that is again, to me, a huge win. Because when your patient is saying things like, well, I was so embarrassed, I was so embarrassed. And I do a little bit of education, say, I noticed that you've been saying that you've been been, been embarrassed about this. You know, one of the things about embarrassment is it tends to be fleeting, tends to be funny, and you know somebody else in the world had this experience. Fleeting, funny, and it's connected. I don't think that's what you're talking about. I think you're talking about something deeply painful that has left you feeling alone and carrying the weight of the world. So let's start by, is it shame or is it embarrassment? And as if a clinician can do that, that's really helpful because then you're gonna start listening for it in a different way. Because one of the things is we wanna minimize it. We don't wanna even, the, the fact of sitting and talking in therapy is so vulnerable. They come in wanting to talk about their shame and they may not be conscious of this, but they want to talk about their shame and pain and the very act of talking about their shame and pain can be shaming, right? So it's a real paradox. So understanding you know, building in many ways, when we are talking about working with victims of trauma, we need to build guardrails to help them wade in and out of their trauma, wade into the deep end, come back out to the shallow end. You know, we don't just throw them in the deep end and say, tell us your trauma story. No, we want to build the way to wade in and out. It's very, that's the same for shame. Like, let's Make sure that we have a trusting relationship. Let's keep working on it. Am I empathic? Am I listening? Am I staying connected to them? And then helping them wade in and wade out. I mean, I'm a believer in it's better. It's, it's good to have a conversation about the conversation so that we have, we make sure that they have grounding techniques. They have ways to regulate themselves. They're not going to leave the office having shared all this shame and go to the liquor store and buy alcohol or pick up drugs or purge, 
right? That's that's not the the point of it is to do so in a thoughtful, contained way. It's not it's not like let's rip off the bandage. It's more of like let's go in slowly and thoughtfully, and then over time, more can be revealed, and then more can be revealed. And so you're developing a narrative where might you have, you know, how do you think you learned about that, right? Where were those messages coming from? Do you notice the messages, your own self-talk? And if I can be really curious and help them get curious, many of my patients will say, you always use the word curious. I'm curious about that because I really am trying to get them to think about how their own mind works and what they're doing. And so the more we pay attention to it and observe and notice it, we're on the right path. Like that ability, wow, I can really start to notice how often I should myself. I say, well, I should have done this, I should have done that. Or I can, man, I was just talking to myself so harshly. It doesn't mean that they may change it right away, but they're beginning to notice and observe it. And if I'm listening to that and I'm hearing that voice in how they're talking to themselves, I try to I try to pause and say, I, you know, I'm noticing how you talk to yourself. And can we think about that together? Where where is that coming from? How is it that that's you know that's the way that you relate to yourself? Could you could we imagine that that we might be able to slow that down? Can we even try to hit the pause button for a little bit? And then you'll go back on it. But I'm going to try to give us back to pausing. So our ability to listen, both to listen to the language, because there are words that are very shaming. And we might have other words where somebody is able to let something go and they're, they're aware, yeah, that wasn't one of my finer moments. You know, it wasn't a great parenting moment, but I, I, I'm not going to use it as a weapon against myself that I'm the worst parent in the world. It takes a lot of work to untangle the inner self-talk, the inner script, the inner relationship. But hopefully through the relationship in psychotherapy, they begin to internalize my voice. And they then we begin to think about a different voice or their own compassionate voice. It might have to start a little bit with me and then they begin to develop it on their own. I've got to say, Cynthia, there are so many more questions that I could ask <laughs> um, on this particular topic, I think because it's simply so relatable. And also, as you pointed out early on, it's something we really don't talk about because it's viscerally uncomfortable. <laughs> and I think as therapists, we're more accustomed to talking about it than other folks might be. Um, but we still experience our own shame. We witness it in the world around us. We witness it in our clients. One point I want to go back to just so I don't lose sight of it before we wrap this conversation up for today you have this spidey sense now to sense shame. What are the things you're looking for? Is it downward cast eyes? Is it slumped shoulders? Like what are your cues where it's like, oh, I've learned to really trust this thing when I observe it, that some shame is, is high. 
Certainly the, certainly the uh, not making eye contact, the slumped shoulders, uh, looking away would be one thing. The language that the person uses uh, when their words of inadequacy, failure, um, worthless, unlovable, uh, those that, that sort of picture of a sense of awfulness and unforgivableness, that shame narrows our view of ourselves so that we don't see anything but how bad we are. And therefore we miss all this other stuff about ourselves. And so in that, when everything, it's, it's like, you know, you feel one thing that you're ashamed of, and then you can find another and another and another, and you have, you're just adding, piling it on. And so, um, so I'm listening in the language, I'm listening in the body language. I try to find a moment. And, and of course, when somebody comes in with psychological mental health issues, I already know it's, it's present. And I also know that they're going to be sitting in that space without conscious awareness. And so I'm, I will also check in, right? How did this feel today? What, what is, it's also completely okay. I try to create a space that they get to share with me how they feel about me. And I think, you know, one of the worst things to do is if you don't really know where your shame triggers are, especially in groups, there's nothing worse than getting shamed by your patient and then sort of going down your own shame storm. And that has happened to me. And so it's happened in an individual session. It's happened in group settings. And so, you know, having a good consultation group or supervision to say, oh, my God, this just did not go well. How do I go back and do that with people who understand how to think about shame in the therapy hour? The other thing I can recommend is um, Rhonda Deering and June Tagney wrote a book in 2011 called Shame in the Therapy Hour. It's fabulous. There's a bunch of different chapters. There's actually a chapter written by Brene in there about a 12 session curriculum, but it really helps think about um, what's happening when people are showing up asking for help and the vulnerability that they have. And um, so I, th I think that's sort of how I would encourage people to go at it, to read, read things for yourself watch, there are a lot more people writing about shame now. Watch TED Talks. Um, you know, the more you educate yourself, the better. And, um, you know, there are a lot more accessible things to help you understand it. But the other thing is that if you can understand it in yourself, you're going to be better able to help people understand it. And the other final thing I would say is if you're going to give an example to a patient or to a group, make sure you've worked through it enough. Because if you open the door to something that you're ashamed of as an example, and you think, oh, this is a good example, you will open yourself to questions, and then you're going to be in a whole lot of shame yourself. So it's really important to talk the example all the way through so that it's not super fresh, because that 
can be really hard to then be in it with no way out until the end of the session. Um, that was a really good piece of advice. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, on that note, yeah. Um, how do people get in touch with you and learn more about your work? Um, you can email me at cmulder.lcsw at gmail.com. I have, um, I'm about to launch a website, so I'm, I'm not even sure what the uh, address is, but I think if you just Google search Cynthia Mulder LCSW, you will find it. Uh, this is my technology shame, is that I'm just <laughs> coming into the 2020 year, year 2020 with some, with some technology. Um, I have a LinkedIn profile, and so happy to um, think and talk. Um, and I really appreciate being here with you. The time has flown by. I can't believe it. So. Oh, thank you for joining us to talk about something, like I said, and as you mentioned, that generally we really don't like talking about. And I appreciate um, the folks like you that are having these conversations and encouraging us as clinicians to reflect on our experience of shame and then how that's appearing for uh, therapists and clients in the room and then just out in the community in the world. Um, I think it's invaluable, probably particularly right now, um, when we are very, very vulnerable as individuals, as a society. So thank you. Thank you for sharing this time with us. I encourage our listeners to get in touch with you. It's always wonderful to see you. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.